Friends, it's good to see everybody again here on the second Sunday of Easter. Happy second Sunday of Easter. If you're like, what in the world are you talking about? Easter was last week. No, it wasn't. It's still Easter because Easter, the the good news of Easter is too wonderful, it's too explosive, it's too powerful, it's too amazing to be contained in one single day. And so the Christians that came before us, people that, you know, created this thing called the church calendar, they gave us seven weeks of Eastertide called the Great 50 Days to celebrate all that the resurrection of Jesus Christ means for us and for our world. So don't you dare limit Easter to one Sunday, okay? We're going to celebrate for a whole 50 days. And if you've been around Respres, you know we talk about this a good bit, actually, is that Christians keep time differently. And what I mean is, like, every human being keeps time around something. That's what it means to be a human, is to orient your time and your habits and ultimately your heart around some story. So to be a Christian is to center and orient your life around a different story than the world. Because there's lots of stories out here in the world asking you to revolve your time and your habits and your affections around them. But we don't revolve around the story of consumerism. And trust me, there is a story. We just came out of uh, St. Patrick's Day, which uh, with all the consumption of shamrock shakes and green beer. <laughs> and then we just finished the commercial side of Easter season with the consumption of chocolate buddy, bunnies and starburst jelly beans. They were delicious. It's about to be Mother's Day, and so, you know, you better get a present for your moms or you're going to be in trouble, right? We don't revolve primarily around that story or the story of sports. We just came out of March Madness season, and now we're definitely in Masters season. I want to know who's winning the final round right now. Don't tell me. I'll find out later. Nor do we revolve our lives around the story of entertainment. And there's a story there, too. We're about to come up on the on the summer blockbuster season, and we're always waiting on the next show that we want to stream. See, these are all fine, and we should enjoy every bit of it, but we reserve the center of our time, our habits, our affections for the story of Jesus and his gospel. Like all the other stories find their orbit around this story, because there's no better story to orient our lives around. And in this story, it's Eastertide. I was reminded this week of a quote from N.T. Wright about the opportunity that Eastertide offers to us as Christians. Listen to this. Wright says, Easter ought to be a festival with champagne served after morning prayer or even before, with lots of hallelujahs and extra hymns and spectacular anthems. Is it any wonder people find it hard to believe in the resurrection of Jesus if we don't throw our hats in the air? Is it any wonder we find it hard to live the resurrection if we don't do it exuberantly in our liturgies? Is it any wonder the world doesn't take much notice if Easter is celebrated as simply the one-day happy ending tacked on to 40 days of fasting and gloom? It's long overdue that we took a hard look at how we keep Easter in the church, at home, in our personal lives, right through the system. This is our greatest festival. Think about that. How, how could that change our lives? If Eastertide was a time for mimosas for breakfast and dessert every night, it should be the anti-Lent. Because how can we fast when the bridegroom is with us? He's back from the dead. He lives forever. 
You see, Christians are those who know what time it is. There's a time for weeping, and there's a time for feasting. And Easter is a time for feasting. So we're going to keep the feast going. And in our preaching, what we're going to do in Eastertide is we're going to ask the question, so Jesus is risen from the dead. Now what? Now what? It's almost like what the first disciples went through, right? Jesus is risen from the dead. Now what? What does this mean for us? What does it mean for those who have been raised with him? In other words, I want to ask the question, what are we raised for? What are we raised unto? Which is actually a a major question about Christian faith in general. What is this about? What is the end of the Christian life? What is it that we are here for? There's lots of explanations, lots of, lots of opportunities or explanations for this question. Are we, raised, are we raised with Christ so that we can go to heaven when we die and, and perhaps convince a few people along the way to come with us? Or are we raised with Christ so we can learn a bunch of good theology and how to win arguments? Are we raised with Christ so that we can participate in social justice projects and seek justice and mercy wherever it is needed most? Listen, those, those are all good things. They are great things. But we need something bigger. Something all-encompassing that, that brings all these together. And I think what the scriptures teach is that we are raised with Christ in order to become truly human. We are raised with Christ in order to become truly human. That is, by the grace, by the Spirit of God, we become more and more what human beings were created to be in relationship to God, to each other, and even to the creation. That's the Christian vision we want to explore of what we are raised with Christ for, to become truly human. So what we're going to do, since the ending of Mark's Gospel, which we did last week, was actually a beginning. It was the beginning of new creation. We're going to go back through Mark's Gospel and look at these stories of resurrection that were like Easter eggs, if you will. They were like hints or clues as to what we are going to be raised for. And so in today's short story, I want us to see that we are in fact raised to serve. We're raised to serve. Would you stand to your feet for the gospel reading tonight? This is Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 29. Immediately he left the synagogue and he entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came, and he took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Let me pray for the preaching of God's word. Our Father, we thank you that you are not hiding or hidden from us, but you have revealed who you are in Christ Jesus, kept for us in the Holy Scriptures, and now even with the help of the Holy Spirit, we are enabled to understand them. Lord, what a gift you've given us. So Holy Spirit, come now and do what only you can do. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand that we would behold Jesus tonight as more, more beautiful, as more believable. And we ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. Should be seated, please.
So I have a question for you tonight, and it's a, it's a question that we're all starting to ask ourselves, which is, what's the first thing you're going to do when COVID is officially over? <laughs> what's the first thing you're going to do? We're almost there, right? There's light at the end of the tunnel. We're not out of the tunnel yet, so keep wearing those masks and be diligent and do your thing, right? But we can see the light, and we're starting to imagine what the world will look like when it goes back to normal And we're starting to ask each other, what's the first thing you're going to do that you haven't done in ages and forever? Maybe you're going to travel, take that vacation you missed out on last year. Maybe you're going to go see family or grandparents. Maybe you're going to go to a concert. Remember concerts? Maybe you're going to invite all your friends over for a massive bonfire and burn all your masks. (laughs) That'd be fun. I actually posted this question in our Slack channel this week, and I got some really great responses. One of you said, as soon as this pandemic is over, I'm going to go sit in crescendo for too many hours and get too caffeinated. That's right, me too, same. That was my life before COVID. One of you said, I'm going to have people over for a big brunch again. And one of you said, I'm going to go clubbing at a dive bar with a Wisco Old Fashioned in hand. (laughs) Who shall rename nameless. Hey, you do you, man. It's fun to imagine, and, and I think this hope actually even sustains us until we, get, until we actually get there. Well, friends, if I were to ask you, what's the first thing you do when Jesus raises you to life? What would you answer? What's the first thing you would do, you do when Jesus raises you up to life in him? The answer from our text today is actually, you begin to serve him. You serve him. To be clear, I'm not talking about when Jesus raises your body at the end of time, though the answer will actually be the same then, too. (laughs) But what I'm talking about is when you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ now, when you put your trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, when he raises you out of your sins and into new life in him, what's the first thing you do? You serve him. Literally, in our text, we just read those three short verses. Peter's mother-in-law is ill. She's seriously ill, with a fever, perhaps even near death. And Jesus comes to her, he touches her, he heals her, and he raises her up, and immediately she begins to serve them. No recuperation time. Like, you know what it feels when a fever breaks, right? You're still achy, and you're still lethargic and out of sorts. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell this same story of Peter's mother-in-law being healed, and they all include this little detail that she immediately got up and she serves. And in fact, this is not the only story where this is the case. I would consider it even to be a theme throughout Scripture. And the theme in these stories is that we are raised up with Christ to serve. There's a story over in Luke chapter 8. It tells a story about other women who were healed by Jesus. It talks about Mary Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. Talk about Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and a woman named Susanna, and many others, the text says. But notice what it says that happens next. After they were all healed by Jesus, it says, And these women provided for them, that is the disciples, out of their own means. In other words, they immediately became benefactors, financial supporters of the ministry of the disciples. They were raised to the service of giving. It's another story in Acts 16 where a a wealthy businesswoman named Lydia is converted to Christ. 
And she and her entire household are baptized, and immediately she says to Paul and his companions, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. See, immediately she is raised to the service of hospitality, welcoming Paul and the other missionaries into her home. Later in that very same chapter in Acts 16, a Philippian jailer is converted to Christ. And he and his whole household are baptized, and he immediately invites Paul and his fellow missionaries to his house to feed them. He sets food before them. He too is raised to the service of hospitality. See, it's a theme. A theme throughout the scriptures, and we see it here in Peter's mother-in-law. We are raised to serve. Now you might be thinking, Matt, this is a little bit of a stretch. Like it's just she just she just got healed. He picks her up off the of bed. Like, aren't you stretching this resurrection theme a little bit? Well, no, I'm not, <laughs> because the word uh, lifted up in verse 31 is the same Greek word that is used for Jesus's resurrection. Twice else in my in Mark's gospel itself, in Mark 14:28, Jesus tells his disciples before it happens, "I'm going to be crucified." And you all are going to scatter and run away from me. But after I am raised up, same word, when I, when I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee and we will regather there. And then in Mark 16, we just talked about it last week, when the women go to the tomb on the first Easter morning, they expect to find a dead body, but instead they find an angel who proclaims to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen or he has been raised. Same word. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. You see, like all good writers, Mark, when he uses this verb, all the way back in chapter 1, it's a hint. It's a clue. It's a mini-resurrection that points to the ultimate resurrection of Christ and of us with him. In fact, I think in Peter's mother-in-law, we're supposed to see a microcosm of the gospel itself. In, in this little three short verses, we see what all of us, anybody who gets called to Christ, goes through. You see, we are all sick with sin. The wording emphasizes that Peter's mother-in-law has been sick for some time and that it is severe. She is lying down and she is unable to raise herself up. Friends, that's every one of us. Every one of us in our sin and our misery, we are lying down, we are unable to raise ourselves And yet Jesus comes to her. He comes to her house. He seeks her out. So also, it is not we who seek God. It is he who seeks us. He takes her by the hand. He touches her. At the risk of catching the fever himself, catching the disease himself. But the touch does not defile the healer. It heals the defiled. He could have just spoken and healed her, but he didn't. This encounter is more personal, it's more tender. So every one of us is healed through a personal, tender encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he raises her up. He lifts her up. The emphasis is is on how instantaneous the healing is. There's no gradual process. He lifts her up and she is well. So too, brothers and sisters, when Christ raises us up, we are forgiven instantly. We are healed of the judgment and the condemnation of our sin instantly and permanently. He resurrects her out of sickness and death, and that is exactly what he does to all who believe. 
As it says in 1 Peter 2.24, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. You see? This event with Peter's mother-in-law, it's a microcosm of what every one of us who will experience who were dead in sin but have been healed by the healer. Who were dead but have been raised by the one who is the resurrection and the life. So now what? What do we do next? Like Peter's mother-in-law, we get up and we serve. We are saved to serve. We move from sickness to service. That word serve in verse 31 is where we get our word deacon. It literally means to wait on tables. And it's it's this very same word that Jesus uses of himself when he talks about the purpose of his life on earth in Mark 10, 45. He said, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Do you see, Jesus uses his great power and authority to serve. And therefore, those who are raised with him will do the same. We will use whatever power and authority is at our disposal in this world, not to be served, but to serve, to give our lives away for the life of the world. Now, the one question we haven't addressed in this is why? (laughs) Why is it that we are raised to serve? Why is it the necessary consequence? Why is it the logical conclusion or the natural progression of those who have been healed by Christ? Friends, I find this fascinating. I think the why is because it is the restoration of what it means to be human. It's the restoration of what it means to be human. What do I mean by that? Well, let's go back to the beginning. Human beings were created by God to be servants. This is foundational to our identity in Genesis 1 and 2, where God makes us in his very own image. We're special creatures made in his own image. If we are made in the image of God, then we will mirror him. We will be like him. And God is himself the ultimate giver, the ultimate server. So when God puts human beings in the garden, it is as a servant, created to be turned outward in service to God and to each other and to the whole creation. Brothers and sisters, you know the story. Sin enters into the world, and what sin does is it turns us inward onto ourselves. This is why the early theologians, we talk about it a good bit here at Resurrection. The early theologians, this is how they talked about fallen human beings. We are homo incurvatus in se. Humanity curved in on itself. See, we're created to be curved outward in service to others, but sin twists us and distorts us and it turns us inward into ourselves, making us into self-serving people. Friends, in the fullness of time, in the fullness of his grace, God rescues us. How does he rescue us but sending his own son to become a human being himself? But Jesus is like us, and yet he's different. He is what human beings were supposed to be. Jesus is not curved in on himself, but perfectly turned outward in service to God and the neighbor. And that is the vocation that he perfectly captures when he says in Mark 10, 45, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life. See, Jesus shows us what humanity restored to service actually looks like. 
So then, friends, it is only fitting that when we look to him in faith, when Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is applied to us, when we are raised with Christ from our sins, that we will begin to be restored to what it means to be truly human. That we will more and more look like the true humanity, and that is to be a servant. We are all like flowers whose petals are closed up and turned in. And the gospel is like the sun that opens us up. It turns us outward, again, towards God and towards others. That's why there's this theme running throughout Scripture and Peter's mother-in-law and Mary Magdalene and Lydia and the Philippian jailer and you and me. The first thing we do when we are raised with Christ is we begin to serve because we are beginning to become truly human again. The Bible's language for this is that we are a kingdom of priests. A kingdom of priests. This is the holy calling that God gave Israel back in the Old Testament. He told them in Exodus 19, I'm rescuing you from slavery in Egypt in order to make you a kingdom of priests. And then in Revelation chapter 1, the the writer applies that same term to the church in the New Testament. He says, Jesus Christ has loved us and freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father. You see, friends, to be a Christian is to be a renewed human being. In process, not perfectly, but to become a renewed human being. And what is a renewed human being? He is a priest. And what do priests do? A priest serves. A priest is turned outward to God in worship and outward to his neighbor in mission. Friends, we, by the grace of God, are a kingdom of priests to serve our God and Father. That is what it means to be raised to serve. So I ask you, on this second Sunday of Easter, where is God calling you to serve as a priest in your life? Where is he calling you Not to be served, but to serve and to give your life away. I don't know what it it will look like for all of you in this room, but I know it will be lived out in the ordinary. The ordinariness of your life with friends and family and co-workers and neighbors. And doing the dishes and changing diapers and going to work. But I know in the midst of that ordinary, this will be like an aroma of life and a world of death. It will open up a vista on what it means to be a different human being. What will it look like for you? Well, I think the poet Wendell Berry gives us some excellent guidance. In his poem, Manifesto, the Mad Farmer Liberation Front. Isn't that a great name? (laughs) Manifesto, the Mad Farmer Liberation Front. This is what Berry writes. So friends, every day, do something that won't compute. That's it, right? Every day, do something that won't compute, won't make any sense to anybody else. Love the Lord. Love the world. Work for nothing. Take all that you have and be poor. Love someone that does not deserve it. Later, he says, expect the end of the world. Laugh. Laughter is immeasurable. Be joyful, though you have considered all the facts. Be like the fox who makes more tracks than necessary, some in the wrong direction. Practice resurrection. Practice resurrection. 
That is what we are called to. We practice resurrection by living not to be served, but to serve. Because we are raised up with Christ to serve. Amen. Let me pray and let's ask God to help us. Father, thank you for Easter. And thank you for this Easter season that we ruminate, that we marinate in all that the resurrection of Jesus Christ means for us. The living hope that we can have at the center of our life. Lord, thank you that you have raised us up. Now give us clarity what we are raised up for. What are we raised unto? Lord, like Peter's mother-in-law, would you raise us up to serve you? Would you turn us more and more away from ourselves, out towards you and towards our neighbor and towards all creation, that we would be those like Christ who did not come to be served, but to serve. I pray the measure of our lives would not be in what we receive, but in what we give, and how we lay down our lives for the sake of others, because our glorious Savior has done that for us. So raise us up, Lord. Make us a kingdom of priests to serve our God and Father. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.